Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Professor Mark. I would like to ask you how you'd like to define yourself for the audience the first time you'd be listening to you. Sure. I'm Mark Kutkowski. I'm a professor at Stanford University. I do research in robotics, uh, especially bio-inspired robotics. And I've been at Stanford since the late 1980s. So I'm curious about your childhood. How was your childhood was? If you can tell us more about Yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I was the kind of kid who's always taking things apart and working on cars. I worked in industry for a while and then went to grad school at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh at the Robotics Institute. Wonderful, wonderful. So when I see you, you did very interesting research. And I can just ask you first, how do you find bionospar design? When you famous robot design at climbing robots, what kind of thing you look look for for bioinspiration, VS biomimicry, if you can tell us more about that. For whatever reason, I've always been interested in bio-inspired design, even long before the climbing robot work. Uh, Some of our earliest work was on uh, grasping and tactile sensing, and we became very interested in trying to understand how human tactile Mm -hmm. sensing works and whether there were ideas there that we could apply to robotics. Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the things that I think very interesting in your talks about using materials. So when we see the soft robots, when you design them, do you look for what kind of material? And if we use multi-material, I think one of the interesting talks you say that if you want to use two, two material, you have to give up in something in the design process. Yeah. If you can listen about that, because it's interesting. So one of the things you notice when looking at uh, biological organisms at animals and plants is that uh, the material properties vary and the behavior of things like legs and joints or the limbs of a tree or many biological systems really depends a lot on the passive mechanical properties of the materials that are used. Mm-hmm. And this, in many cases, simplifies control and makes the systems more robust with respect to unexpected disturbances. So when you want to do bio-inspired robots, you again need to think about the properties of materials and mm-hmm. how those properties can be used to achieve passive mechanical behaviors that you're looking for, for example, for stability. And so when we started doing mobile robots, even before climbing robots, one of the the things that we were particularly interested in was understanding how, for example, making small running robots with the flexible elements at the joints, that uh, not only the the flexibility, the compliance of those joints was important, but also the damping properties. Mm. So when you start to combine different materials together, hard and soft, for example, you want to look at, at a number of different properties of the materials, how, how they combine, how they achieve, how they affect the dynamic behavior. 
-hmm. So one of the challenges that you have to face then is that when you put two very different materials together in the same structure, for example, yeah. when you go from hard to soft, there are invariably stress concentrations at that interface. And yeah. so a lot of work goes into sort of designing those details of the uh, connection between the hard and soft material so that you don't get failures that, that occur right at that interface. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I'm curious to ask you about the nonlinear geometries in that case. If you want to combine two materials, what, what do you think may be the best representation for the other material in the first one, if we speak two material here? And how you can make sure reduce the stress concentration and achieve that what you're looking for in the in terms of the desired performance. What could be the topology you're looking for or nonlinearities either in the material or the structure? What could be interesting for you? Rather, I would start at, at a systems view and say, what is the behavior I want to yeah. achieve? And then I look at at different designs of structures, we'll do finite element analysis. In many cases, you're talking about a nonlinear large strain finite element analysis for these elastomeric compounds mm -hmm. and, uh, and model it, and then uh, either optimize or at least try to make sure that you, you satisfy some constraints that you've imposed on, on the behavior of the system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great, great. So maybe I'm curious to ask you about um, when you look for maybe an avoidable trade-off in design process, what could be the unavoidable trade-offs? Unavoidable trade-offs. Yeah. Well, for example, here's one. Uh, when you look at small running robots, mm -hmm. uh, you can make them uh, simpler to control, more stable with respect to perturbations by adding damping, passive damping at the hip joints. Mm -hmm. right? So that's a good thing. The price you pay is that the locomotion efficiency will be lower because you're always dissipating energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is true not only of our robots, it's true of animals too. Uh, cockroaches in term, uh, you know, compared to other animals are not particularly efficient in terms of their locomotion efficiency. On the other hand, if you're a cockroach, the world's full of food. So yeah. it doesn't matter as much. Yeah, yeah. But I'm guessing when you look for that inspiration by inspiration, we know that nature doesn't have always optimal solution. And we have a debate about bio-inspired design, bio-hybrid design. So when you look to the solution for bio-inspiration, when you go to, for example, the gecko, for example, what kind of maybe uh, solution look for? Because we know it's not optimum. It's a result of evolution. So if you can tell us more about that, how you consider when you look to bio-inspiration, I would make sure this could be deployed. Right. So, yeah. yeah, so as, as you say, um, when you look to nature, you find designs that are very good, but they're not optimal. Nature, after all, works on the principle of good enough. If it's good mm -hmm. enough to survive and reproduce, then it will be continued. And you just as a simple example, you know, you, humans have five fingers. Is that optimal for grasping? Well, wait a minute. Uh, squirrels and monkeys and all kinds of mammals and reptiles all have five digits. Is it just that five was okay and that design got carried along? So what we often find is that we'll start out with the bio-inspired solution because it's an existence proof. It says that there is a way to solve this problem and it's actually probably a very good one. But then as we understand the physics of the particular problem that we're working on, mm in more detail, we'll do more detailed numerical models and so on, then we can start to optimize. And in fact, we can exceed the performance of the biological exemplars. Mm 
Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So when it comes to the interaction with the environment, how it's hard to model that? Because we know that sometimes modeling is so challenging. It is Which hard. And interaction with the environment is especially hard because mm -hmm. things make contact, they scrape, they bump, they dissipate energy through friction. Uh, they carve off little bits of material as they, as they drag mm -hmm. against surfaces. All of this is very nonlinear and, uh, and inherently difficult to model. So when we talk about modeling, actually, I would say, yeah, the most difficult modeling we do involves physical interaction with the environment. For example, if you have a walking robot and it's yeah. walking upon soil or gravel, well, how does the soil deform? You know that when you're walking on the sidewalk, that requires less energy than walking in sand on the beach. Mm -hmm. How much more energy exactly? And how much does it depend on how wet the sand is? That's actually a challenging thing to model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The same is true yeah. for geckos uh, on, on walls and so on. That you, When you want to model the interactions involving van der Waals forces, it's a complicated problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And may I ask you, do you think we fully understand how we can, for example, the material, do you think we fully understand the physics behind a smart material when we deal with them? If we speak about nonlinear material, for example, you think you understand them fully? You understand reasonably well, I think. I mean, you never understand everything perfectly. But mm -hmm. for example, the, the, the current models for like large strain uh, models for elastomers are actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I'm curious. Yeah. Interacting with environment, you know, interacting with soil, interacting through adhesion with surfaces, uh, that uh, and on, in dry, wet conditions, you know, walking through grass, mm. all of that, um, the, the state of the art of modeling is, is not as good. There's uh, uh -huh. a, lot more, a lot more uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. So I'm curious to ask you from your experience, do you, what do you think may be area or direction of research when it comes to soft robotics? You think it's very promising, but we still, we don't give much attention we consider the real well, we're giving robotics. lots of attention to soft robotics now and yeah. I, I think there's a couple reasons for that uh okay. first is that uh we do now have materials and ways rapidly of producing prototypes with soft materials that we didn't have before so you can now 3d print a soft robot that means that lots of people are going to try to do it and they'll discover lots of exciting things and that's great we mm. also have pretty good modeling now for soft materials. And so we can predict performance. Where there are still challenges, big challenges, have to do with, um, with actuation and sensing. Mm -hmm. Implanting lots of sensors in a soft robot is just inherently more complicated than, than putting you know, joint angle sensors and force torque sensors on a standard industrial robot. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, you can't just stick an electric motor in a soft robot. Uh, you, there, you, there needs to be some interface between actuation and this soft structure that you're trying to make move. So this is leading people to explore all kinds of new uh, artificial muscles and, and other actuators that are inherently well matched to the mm -hmm. characteristics of soft robots. So we see a lot of research in that area now. That's a very interesting point. I guess I'll ask you about embedding the actuation and synthing and the, the same material or embodied intelligence in that case. So what do you think is still maybe challenging in interfacing both of them at the same time? Well, a good example, I mean, we have the, the state of the art in sensing has come a long way, thanks in large part to cell phones. Your mm -hmm. cell phone has far more sensors in it than you probably realize. 
and has pressure sensors, temperature, voice, vibration, acceleration, and so forth. And this has made sensors much more available and brought their cost way down. So we can now afford to put many more sensors on robots than we did before. That's great, but there's still a very serious problem which involves interfacing these sensors. You, the sensors themselves are little silicon chips. Mm -hmm. they're, they're hard. So you put them in a soft robot and you have now this mismatch in material properties between something that's very hard and you're embedding it into a soft structure and you have to attach wiring. Or if you wanna make it wireless, then you have to find out a way to have an antenna and do that. In any mm -hmm. case, I guess my point is that uh, while we have good sensors, the integration of sensing with soft mm -hmm. robots is still very much an unsolved problem. Mm -hmm. And for actuation, it's even worse because uh, because actuation one has to one has to worry about about energy, about power, and the second law of thermodynamics, and these <laughs> very important, very serious physical constraints mm -hmm. that, that drive what we do. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Can you tell us, like, pinpoint for example, why it's so challenging for embedding sensing? You can imagine solution for that, or maybe yeah. what so. Imagine I want to make an octopus arm, and you say, mm -hmm. "Great!" And I notice that the actual octopus arm is covered with little mechanoreceptors, and oh, they have chemical receptors they can taste with their arms. So why don't why don't we sprinkle our soft octopus arm with with lots of sensors? How many would you like? Oh, a hundred at least. Okay, how are we going to wire them all up? And by the way, the wires, if they're metal, are not soft. So we have to make serpentine paths so that they can stretch. And you say, well, okay, well, maybe I could use some kind of organic uh, conducting material. Uh, but then connecting it to the sensor and having a reliable connection that will survive many stretching cycles without breaking. Mm -hmm. Again, th these, are, these are very difficult engineering problems to address. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So I'm curious to ask you in this journey, what's something is still hard to understand in terms of minus by design? You think it's still hard to understand for you? Well, we're only in the early stages of starting to understand mm -hmm. biological organisms. I, I think in part, you know, that part of the reason behind the proliferation of bio-inspired designs is that we do now understand more about about organisms at the molecular level, at the cellular level, at mm -hmm. the organ level, at the entire system level than we did before. But still so much is not understood uh, mm -hmm. about details of metabolism and, and so on. And, uh, and, and there's just going to continue to be lots of research in that area. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and as we learn more, we'll, we'll gather more inspiration and probably start applying yeah. it to our robots as well. Yeah. So maybe someone could argue with you if we look for bioinspiration or biomimicry or biohybrid design. And someone tell you we, we don't have to bother ourselves to understand the biology or how the physics of this creature work. How do you think about biohybrid design as bioinspired for biomimicry? Or maybe evolving something so, beyond So those are three different things. Biomimicry means mimicking. And, you know, I mean, people have said, why, why would you want a cockroach robot? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I remember a long time ago, we were collaborating with some, some biologists who are experts in uh, mechanoreception. 
and they were describing how the McCown receptors work. And as engineers, we found it very exciting. And we were making little models and said, oh, you know, this sort of behaves like a, like a mechanical high pass filter. And one of them came over and looked down at us and said, what are you doing? Wow, we're mm. making these engineering models that we think kind of describe how the, or how the organism works or how the cell works. And the response was, well, any model you make is going to be so inadequate compared to the real thing. If I want to know how the actual thing works, I'll just measure it. So that's a fundamental, and this is a very good scientist. So that's a fundamentally different philosophy. Engineers make models because we, we value them and we think they have predictive power. Sure, we will never perfectly model or understand the, the biological system, but, but we may have models that are good enough for our purposes. Anyway, going back to the three, the three different things. So biomimicry is, is mimicking animal things. And I mean, obviously that's important for Disney Imagineering. It's not important for me. I want to learn principles of locomotion, of climbing, of grasping, of sensing that I can apply and adapt to robots to make them work better. So that's bio-inspiration. Mm. And then finally, biohybrid is still another thing, and it's very exciting. Could we start to integrate robotic and live biological systems into, into a single organism? And there is work going on in that area, and it's, uh, it's fascinating. I don't know where it will go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, yeah. So going back to mechanical intelligence, when you want locomotion, for example, or climbing, we now have example for origami or, for example, tensegrity or maybe, uh, maybe other inspired design. How, how do you see this kind of maybe the common thing between both of them in mechanical intelligence, either tensegrity or origami? How you, you, you figure out this could be a meeting for energy consumption and also achieving locomotion? If you can give example for both of them, yeah. Okay, so you mentioned origami and you mentioned tensegrity. Yeah. I'm not sure that either of those is inherently bio-inspired. They're, mm. they're, they're human creations. They're very clever because they allow you to take a, a sort of simpler modular approach and uh, use it to achieve, for example, an, an origami robot to achieve a three-dimensional structure with certain properties. It makes it a lot easier to manufacture the components because maybe you can cut them on a laser and then unfold them. And there's a very nice mathematical theory behind origami and how you create different three-dimensional structures from two-dimensional uh, layers and folding patterns. And Tegsegrity ha has some similar properties. It, we, we've intentionally used a very kind of parsimonious repertoire of, of components, of mm -hmm. stiff links and cables. And we've shown that with this very limited uh, vocabulary of, of fundamental Component, structural components, we can achieve very interesting three-dimensional behaviors, and this makes it easier to analyze mathematically and mm -hmm. uh, also gives us interesting properties that they can squash flat and then, and then become erect and so on. And then, sure, be, as you go out and look in the world, you may find certain mm -hmm. structures in nature that, that seem to have similar principles, maybe the unfolding of wings in a in a, you know, in, in, a, in an insect that's undergoing metamorphosis or something in a sea sponge or something like that or bones and, and, and tendons and so on. But 
and this is the problem, you know, with bio-inspired design is that in, you know, there are lots of cases, uh, and um, this is not an original idea to me. Uh, there's a nice article by uh, by Vogel uh, that points out that in many cases we we design something first and then after the fact discover that there are biological exemplars, and yeah, uh, that's just the way it is. Thank you. Thank you for that. So I'm curious to ask you, is there something you thought would work out very well? Imagine from modeling or maybe, yeah, when you thought about designing process and when you go to real experimentation, you found something was counterintuitive to you, yes. very surprising. Did you have something sure. like that? Yeah. Oh, many times. And one of my favorite examples has to do with the climbing robots. Mm. In the early days of working on the climbing robots with, with adhesion, I mean, we knew right away from doing simple free body diagrams that it was going to be the upper limbs that were really going to have to apply the uh, tensile force to hold the robot into the wall to prevent it from pitching over backwards. We knew that. And therefore, there was a tendency in our earliest work to kind of favor the front limbs, to apply them gently so that they wouldn't pop off. Mm. But then as we continued to work on the adhesion and we learned working with uh, Bob Full and Keller Autumn, two wonderful biologists, that the, uh, the, one of the essential points about gecko adhesion is that, uh, is that it's uh, both directional and proportional. Directional meaning that it only sticks if you pull on it in a certain direction. Proportional in that the harder you pull, the more it sticks. Ah. So what does that mean in terms of our climbing robot? It means that if you sort of put, if you put directional adhesion on the front limbs, and then you try to very gingerly favor the front limbs, you will fall. What you instead need to do is pull harder with the front limbs because then they stick better. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about the control in that case. How, how about you thought about the controller? Because we have the question about whether the con traditional control need maybe advancement for meeting the, the nature of, of robotics. And there's also some thoughts about coupling geometric and material nonlinearities. It's not new, it's, yeah, but still, yeah, we don't grasp maybe how we can couple geometric and material nonlinearities so that we can achieve locomotion, for example, whatever we want to do. Do you thought about that, the controller and using the geometric nonlinearities of the structure and the material as well to replace the controller? Uh, we, we use them together. So in that example I just gave of a climbing robot, I mean, that has interesting implications for how you control the limbs. Actually, it turns out when, when you have a climbing robot climbing up a wall, it's really more like grasping with uh, fingers on a hand than like ordinary locomotion with a four-legged animal supported by its legs. And the reason why is that the you, you need to think about the internal forces. Uh, you need to think about how much weight is being taken by the front limbs compared to the rear limbs. And you're going to control those internal forces in order to make sure that you maintain the best possible safety margin for, for your adhesion. And this goes back to what the example I just gave that we said, okay, what we learned from the adhesion is that we actually want to pull harder with the front limbs and therefore we pull less hard with it, we push less hard with the rear limbs. 
And so mm -hmm. we, uh, we implement that in our controller. That's great, yeah. And maybe uh, we other question here about how to make sure that uh, design is redundant if there's damages happening or so climbing. Isn't a scenario like that how we can be redundant if I lose like serial numbers? Well, that's a good point. And actually that's, I think, one of the main limitations even of our bio-inspired robots compared to nature is that we don't have anywhere near the redundancy and the robustness. And uh, Bobful has amazing videos of uh, cockroaches that manage to locomote perfectly well, missing one, two, three, uh, or even four legs. We just aren't there in robotics. Uh, I mean, our, our climbing robots, they climb, but they barely climb. And uh, if, if one, let alone two legs, loses its grip, they're likely to fall. Actually, that's one of the reasons why the earlier robot that we did with, with Boston Dynamics and UPenn and Carnegie Mellon uh, and Berkeley, um, and actually it was a big team. And we also had Keller Autumn uh, from Lewis and Clark, but this big, big consortium worked on a robot called Rise. And it was a six-legged robot. And part of the reason for that was that we could use a very conservative, what's called pentapedal gait, where we only take one leg off the wall at a time. Mm -hmm. So that if, if it slips, it isn't catastrophic. That's great, yeah, yeah. So maybe I'm gonna ask you about uh, what could be seeing the biggest technological roadblocks for your research? What's still really challenging? Yeah, technological robot roadblocks, well, Okay, it depends on, on what, I mean, it's different for different domains. So for the gecko adhesives, I think our main challenge at the moment, I think we understand how the adhesives should work. We actually know what kind of structures we would like to make and we, can, we just can't make them. Uh, mm. We can come close. Uh, we actually did an experiment with some researchers at the Scuola uh, Superiore Santana in Italy where uh, they had one of these uh, nanoscribe, two photon lithography machines. So you can make incredibly small features in a sort of a 3D printing process. Uh, feature sizes down to something like a third of a micron, 300 mm -hmm. and some nanometers. That's small enough actually that you could make relatively faithful gecko adhesive structures. Well, but there's a problem. First of all, it was very difficult and it required a huge amount of work on the part of the people there to get it to get it to work at all. Secondly, it took many, many hours to make less than one square millimeters worth of structure. So it's simply not practical. In nature, these structures are produced in parallel by growing, growing and branching and so on you know, cells and it can differentiate cell by cell. So, I mean, that's one of the main challenges I find is this, you know, whenever you look at anything in nature, even a single cell, it's just incredibly complex. And because nature produces these structures, uh, cell by cell growing and differentiating, the, the, the cost of such complexity is relatively low. And so when we try to use any kind of manufacturing process, even the most advanced ones, we're, we're really at a loss to, to recreate that kind of complexity. And so that's, that's one, one major technological challenge. Mm -hmm. And then there are others. I mentioned the problems of integrating sensors and soft robots. That's still a technical challenge. Actuation is still a challenge. And computing, you know, although it has advanced enormously mm -hmm. over the last 20, 
years, it's of course, um, you, you look at the level of computation that goes on inside the brain of a bird and again, mm -hmm. we're nowhere close. That's uh, wonderful. I'm curious to ask you this question because I think that's something we have like a trade-off sometimes in the actuation. If we have like, for example, looking for high performance in terms of mechanical performance, yes, the response time. This, this is always a trade-off between the response time and the mechanical performance. How we can achieve actuator that have high mechanical performance, like forces, for example, and also in response time. Yeah, it's been an application, but recently a past response. Yeah, I mean, I don't actually think the trade-off is between between power and response time. I mean, the best, you know, very good electric motors that are used in robots, especially the custom ones used on robots like Cheetah at MIT, they're really very good. They're very powerful. They have a high power density. They have essentially instantaneous response. So the challenge then is, is I think, more to do with uh, what happens when we want to try to do soft robotics and wearable robotics where, where these sort of inherently stiff uh, or actuators made out of hard materials. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not compliant inherently. And, and then integrating them with soft structures is a challenge uh, on, you know, coming from a different direction. People are trying to make artificial muscles that themselves inherently are soft and, and store and return energy and so on. Mm -hmm. And that's promising, but we're, they're just at the moment, they have nowhere near the efficiency, the durability, the uh, power density that, that we're able to get from the best uh, electromagnetic mm -hmm. actuators that we have. Great, great. So we are closing and have a few questions. The first one, if you can tell us what could be the most favorite robots you have built? It was very, very interesting for oh, you. I built, I, well, first of all, I have to say that my favorite robot is always the one that I'm working on right now. Okay. But I, I, yeah. Um, and, and over the years, you know, there have been ones that we keep coming back to because they're just really nice stories or lessons that we've learned. And StickyBot, I think, certainly is among them. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what could be challenging for you now, if you can tell us what aspiration for the current robot and maybe challenges? You know, what we're doing right now, actually, we're doing more work on hands and grasping. And part of what we discovered is that uh, the gecko adhesives that we originally built for climbing robots also are very interesting to use in manipulation. They allow you to grasp objects very gently with uh, almost no normal force, no internal grasp force. Mm -hmm. And that kind of changes the rules for manipulation in interesting ways. And so we're applying that to some new hands and some new manipulation strategies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We also mm -hmm. have, uh, and it should happen, oh, any week now, um, we did a gripper with NASA that uh, is to be mated with one of their Astrobe free flyers up in the International Space Station. And it's been sitting there waiting its turn patiently. And I understand that maybe later this month or perhaps in March, we'll be able to see the results of some experiments of grasping objects in space with gecko grippers. Wonderful. I guess that's good because it's a question we had all the time about the environment. How we manage to design them in a different environment, for example, in Mars, for example. Is this any consideration of taking account for design? For sure. For and it's entirely project and application specific. So if you tell me I need to design a gripper for Mars, I'll look at I'll look at that environment. I'll look at the temperature. I'll look at the atmosphere. I'll look at how dusty it is. Mm -hmm. 
why why it's why? differently why, why just well if, yeah oh because the gecko adhesives actually don't work very well in dusty conditions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on the other hand the kind of the spines of the sort that we used earlier on the rise robot those work fine in dusty conditions interesting yeah thank you for saying that yeah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, may I ask you, we have just two questions from the audience who want to ask you. Can I ask you these two questions, okay? Yeah. Um, the first one is, uh, yeah. The first one from Eric, uh, he said that um, in software robots, uh, what programming language do you use and any advice for future robotics engineer? So for soft robotics, we use the same languages that we use for anything else. It's just a mix of things. You use, uh, C++ and C for things that need to run fast in real time. You use Python where you want to be able very quickly to generate new interfaces. Uh, we use, we do a lot of ROS programming when we're trying to get different systems to talk to each other uh, as, as part of a network or some integrated robotic uh, system. Yeah, mm -hmm. just Great, great. And he asks you, uh, as a junior currently studying robotics engineering, are you looking for an intern in your lab, internship? Well, internship is an interesting question. We, it, um, it's actually complicated at Stanford to take an intern from outside of Stanford. Mm -hmm. What we have is a very, and, and, and also the School of Engineering at Stanford has a really good program to encourage undergrads at Stanford to be interns in labs over the summer. So that tends to be mostly what, what we do. Mm -hmm. Great. I also have a question from Ryan. He asks you, how close are we getting with robotic hand design being something that becomes nearly open source with access of 3D printing uh, becoming more there available? Are, there are actually some rather good open source uh, robotic hand designs out there, multi-fingered hands that you, you can 3D print. And... Um, they're not going to be a substitute for a $100,000 hand that you would buy uh, from yeah. your, one of the top manufacturers, but they'll be good enough to experiment with. And it also depends a lot on the application. Are we talking about a, a, you know, a hand for manufacturing, a hand for exploring and doing experiments and manipulation? Are we talking about a prosthetic hand that you would maybe yeah. customize to each individual? But, but in fact, there are some rather good open source hand designs out there already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we have lost a question. I don't know if you can answer it, but uh, it's like a generic question. When we will have bionic limbs, limbs uh, to just be better version of the one we have currently have? Yeah, really good question. I, you know, I don't know that we ever will be in every regard. Uh, and furthermore, uh, they may already be getting to the point that they're better for some carefully circumscribed activity. You know, mm -hmm. for, for for running or or for doing some very special task. Yeah. yeah. And, and remember, even the most sophisticated bionic hands that we've been building are orders of magnitude less complicated than biological structures. Um, years ago, I remember talking with Paolo Dario, well-known guy um, from you know, well-known senior researcher in robotics from Italy, and he had a nice example, which is that you know what we need to do is to have something, a, a robot that has the sophistication of a Boeing 747 in the size of a mouse. That's interesting. So I'm curious about your aspiration. What could be your aspiration? 
for me when it comes to buying smart robots? What could be your aspiration? I want robots to go places that they've not been before. So like if yeah. you say we would like robots to climb walls or to go in lava tubes, or for example, we've been involved in a project with the Samaka team at Stanford called Ocean One and yeah. its successor, which is going to be Ocean 1000. Yeah. Can robots go to have a thousand like... years below the sea? That's an exciting challenge. I mean, uh, we haven't had those kind of robots. Well, there have been machines that go down that deep, but not really a bimanual humanoid mm -hmm. robot. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, robots on Mars, robots on the moon. I mean, all, all of these things are, are very exciting. So I would like mm -hmm. robots to go places that robots haven't been before. And that is a good reason to look at, at nature because then you look at these hostile environments and you say, well, what lives down there already? And what principles are being used by the things that live down there already in order to survive and in order to mm -hmm. function in that hostile environment? Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about your collaboration with Professor Robert Fall. I think you have a lot of future cooperation. But how the communication between you and biologists go? What expect is it challenging to what, what are you looking for and the language between it you? is. And you you learn something about about the field and how people operate and talk. Bob is, is wonderful because he's an integrative biologist and he likes working with engineers. He understands engineering very well. And um, he understands that, that sometimes when you implement ideas from biology into a robot, that robot can be a good way to, to shed insight on, on whether the principles that you've identified really are the important ones. Because guess what? It's much easier to test these things on a robot than it is with animals. Yeah. It's very interesting, yeah. But, but not all biologists are, are accustomed to working that way. And I, I gave that example earlier about the one who came and looked at our little engineering models and said, what on earth are you doing? I, if I wanna understand my biology, I'll just measure it directly. It's, yeah. a different, it's a different way of thinking about things. Absolutely, absolutely, I agree with you. And I'm gonna ask you this question here about the risk and ideas and traditional ideas, because we, we ask all the time about if you have a new idea, and I don't know if you encounter that, this is really not a make sense to me. Have you encountered something like that when you have risky idea, new ideas, and people don't really get the idea what you sure, try to do? Sure. All, all, all the time. So um, that may have been the case with the first spine-based climbing robots, and until we had produced a first prototype that actually climbed, I think uh, I think a number of people, including the funding agency that was funding yeah. us, were Another example, I had a student from Canada who was interested in model airplanes and RC airplanes. And he came to me with the idea that, well, what if, what if an airplane could fly and then perch on vertical surfaces like the wall of a building? I have to say, initially, I was a little skeptical that we could make that work. But I said, well, why don't we give it a try? And, and so on. And we actually had a hard time for about two years convincing people that this was a, a worthwhile thing to do. It seemed, it seemed um, obvious to us that it was a good idea because if you perch, then you can power down the motor and you can stay there for a long time uh, doing you know, environmental monitoring or surveillance or whatever have you. Mm -hmm. But it, it, took a, it took a while to convince people that this was even a good idea. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's just discussion for you sometimes when you have new ideas and yeah, the people don't get what you're saying. How you cope with that? 
you just you keep working on it and and getting mm -hmm. more results writing papers and and eventually uh, either it either it was a good idea or it wasn't if it wasn't well then that'll become obvious and you abandon it and do something else and if it was mm -hmm. i think i think people will come around it is one of the nice things about being in a university environment yeah if yeah. you have sharp students and uh, if they have a fellowship or something like that then you can continue to work on an idea at at very low cost, really, uh, to see if it's going to pan out or not. Mm -hmm. Maybe so some of the yeah 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 maybe some will argue argue with you about publication in that case because if you have these new ideas and risky, this we know that publish or perish. How do you see that amount of paper you have to produce, and if you have really new idea and it takes a time to maybe that's right it yes it does. Yeah, and, and I have to say that, that people who design robots and systems tend to produce, I think, fewer and longer papers because you, you have to first, you have to design it, you have mm -hmm. to analyze it, you have to build a prototype, you have to test it and get some results, and only then can you write the paper. I agree, yeah, yeah. Uh, so maybe a few questions on the weekend calls because yeah, I respect your time, so. Um, the first one about Boston Dynamic, how do you see the cost of the robots? Because we have discussion about if it's $75,000 and we, we have a challenge here, how, how you can make it more affordable and also efficient. Have you ever thought about that? Sure. I mean, I don't think Boston Dynamics is, maybe they'll correct me, but I don't think they're in the business of making robots uh, at low cost. They're <laughs> really at pushing the absolute limit of what's possible, making the most uh, mechanically sophisticated robots out there and, and showing really impressive capabilities. What you see, if you, if you look instead at some of these uh, security robots or uh, shelf restocking robots for warehouses and supermarkets or mobile robots at Amazon you know, distribution centers, where things are produced in much higher quality quantity, then of course the cost comes way down. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. So even about Akasasq, do you think ego is important for you? Ego. Ego. Yeah, that'd be for anybody who's doing who's doing sort of re research out there with uh, <laughs> and trying to convince people about new ideas. Mm -hmm. That's got to be there, doesn't it? That's important. Okay. And may, may I ask you if you have any crazy ideas you think about, still thinking about designing or any crazy ideas do you have? Oh, always. Uh, I mean, we, we just, uh, I mean, we, it, it, and a lot of it is, it, first of all, a lot of the ideas that one gets, at least for me, they come from talking to other people. So mm -hmm. you get together and you brainstorm and you say, oh, I wonder if that would be possible. And you think about it some more and you go, oh, you know, actually, I think it really might be possible. Let's maybe do a quick prototype, or let's write a proposal and see if anybody nibbles at this idea. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have uh, a new project that is just starting up called uh, ReachBot, which I'm very excited about. It's going mm -hmm. to be with uh, Professor Marco Pavone at Stanford and Aeroastro. It will involve a robot, a small robot that can negotiate things like lava tubes and caves, and it will have a little body and very long arms, sort of like a tape measure that it just extends way out and then they can grasp on things. Mm -hmm. it's by grasping. 
And it, it's one of these things, again, seems like a great idea to me. I'm sure there are lots of people who are going to be very skeptical at first. Yeah. And, uh, maybe over the course of the next year or so, we'll convince them that it's actually a pretty good idea after all. Yeah, that's very encouraging. That's interesting. And I'm curious to ask you what could be the most important quality you have gained while being working in this project and also in academia. And something you have to maintain, important quality. Well, I, for my lab and for the kind of robotics I do, first important thing is just be willing to try stuff out. We're, we're big believers in doing sort of an early rough prototype just to get some initial insight, just to see if the idea works. Not worrying right away about optimization, but, mm -hmm. but really doing kind of a proof of concept and also to answer initial questions about, about what might work. And so that, that just requires, uh, so, so students that are, that are able to work in that environment are ones that are just willing to go out and try something. Uh, and then the uh, you know, other important characteristics are, yes, you need to be willing to, to collaborate with people, to work with robotics and work with biologists and work with people in the medical profession. Uh, that's mm. where a lot of the action is. Actually, it's interesting. I think every single one of my current research projects is a collaboration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. more now than it was when I started back in the late 1980s. Yeah. Uh, projects are becoming uh, bigger and more, in, more, uh, more interdisciplinary than they used to be, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess in this journey, do you have any moments of failure and was a turning point to you to more success? Oh, yeah, there are many points in failure, but you just pick up and move on and try a different way. Wonderful, yeah. And lastly, what was the best advice uh, was given to you and was it likely changing? I think some of the earliest important advice I got was not about robotics, but about design. Mm -hmm. uh, it, because design is very central to the kind of robotics we do. And actually design is what I did before I got into robotics. And there are some important principles that, that good designers follow. One of the first is don't get attached to any one idea. People have a strong tendency to stick or get fixated on, on an initial idea for solving a problem and they'll work and work and work and struggle with it when actually you'd be better off uh, just trying a completely new approach. Mm -hmm. and, I still follow that and I also encourage my students, don't just give me one solution. Let's, let's look at two or three rather different solutions and, and keep them all going for a while. Prototyping early and often and failing early and often is another important piece of advice that was given to me uh, in, in the design field. Yeah, that's really wonderful. And then the third is that even if you're, no matter how good you are, uh, with physical intuition and at prototyping, yeah, you still, you still really want to do the modeling because the modeling is a way, first of all, that you explain how it works to somebody else and also to yourself. And also it's a prerequisite for ultimately doing some kind of optimization. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. I think what he said is very interesting for the student and audience as well. So I deeply appreciate what he said. Uh, it's very, very interesting and very important. And uh, may I ask you if you have any final words you'd like to say for robotics community and for robotics community as well? Any no, I'm fighting in robotics now. The, the, a lot of pieces of the technology have, have uh, come to the point where, where there's many new opportunities. 
uh, I, I mean, computation is what, you know, the, the processor and a cell phone is just vastly more powerful than the computer that I shared with several other students when I was at Carnegie Mellon. Sensing is vastly more available than it used to be and much cheaper. Actuation is coming along slower, but it's also mm -hmm. coming along. New materials and new 3D printing and manufacturing processes are coming along at an amazing clip. The, the best uh, 3D printers and manufacturing machines are so much better than they were even just a few years ago. So yeah. all of these things, that I think there's a lot of new opportunities in robotics. Yeah, that's very interesting. Again, uh, I would like to thank you, Professor Mark. It was very really inspiring. And uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of what you're doing. And uh, yeah, thank you once again. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so lot. Thank you. Thanks, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank okay. you. Bye -bye. Thank you.